This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Guildford. As a bright spark, she was the first in her family to go to university, where she trained to be a criminal barrister. However, she then took a career change and decided the fast-paced field of newsroom was for her. She became a reporter before moving to Newsnight, where she spent several years as a special guest producer. In this role, my guest secured some of the highest profile interviews the BBC has covered, from President Clinton to Elon Musk and that famous interview with Prince Andrew, or perhaps infamous. Now she has left the BBC and written her memoir, Scoops, behind the scenes of the BBC's most shocking interviews, which is coming soon to Netflix. My guest today is Sam McAllister. Sam, is there anything I just said that was um, defamatory or wrong? Completely correct and nothing defamatory, I'm afraid. Okay, we'll try harder. We've got got about (laughs) half an hour. So to begin on this podcast, Sam, we ask all our guests the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yeah, absolutely. I love this question. I think it's a great thing because I think it's It's the foundation. It's it's the foundation, isn't it, of every life? You you learn so much. So on a subjective level, 100% an idyllic childhood, two parents in the house, only child, um, adored, so number one child and last child, and unconditional love, both at home because they'd retired or weren't working. Objectively, my dad was bipolar and sometimes would sell a house that we were living in and then we'd have to move country. But I kind of enjoyed that in the sense that my mother taught me to be resilient and hardy. So idyllic childhood on a subjective level, objectively a couple of curveballs, but made me resilient and made me really appreciate stability. So did you move around a lot then? We did. We moved around quite a lot. We started off, I'll just be honest, which was my dad sold his business. He and my mum ran together. Started with rabbit hutches. They both left school at 14. So they grafted their way up. And then he ended up with caravans, ran mobile home parks. And my mum was his kind of like chief seller. So they were both salespeople and entrepreneurs. And when he retired and sold the business, a, a great profit at the time, and they were very thrilled, they decided to become tax exiles because this was kind of like 1974, 1975, and the tax situation was a bit punchy, as they say. So they moved to first, not glamorous tax exile places, like BVI. Uh, First, we went to Guernsey, where I was until I was 14. And then my dad moved us to the Isle of Man, where I was until I was 18. And then he infamously sold the house and moved us without telling us to Andorra La Vella, which is a ski resort for three people who have never skied and never did ski. So Were you just thinking Monaco? I was thinking Monaco, BVI, Bahamas. I don't know all the tax exile places, but Isle of Man and Guernsey were not top of my list. So it was an eclectic, is that a nice euphemism, an eclectic childhood. But I was extremely happy and it was a lot of fun. And you were the first in your family to go to university, am I right? That's right. Did, did your parents encourage it? Were you studious? Um, how did it work out? Yeah, I mean, my parents were super, super clever, but their lifestyles hadn't afforded them the opportunity. My mum, past the 11 plus, she was born in kind of the slums of Stoke Newington, as she would say, in a council estate when it was kind of not trendy. And my father came from a very kind of like um, upper working class, I suppose, background. And they both had to get a job. No one was paying the bills in their houses. So my mum left school at 14 going on 15. My dad left school at 14 
hugely bright and talented, but they were so thrilled and, you know, magnificently supportive of this somewhat strange child who loved to read and loved Shakespeare and history and was, you know, pretentiously kind of like swallowing a thesaurus and having debates with them over the dinner table while we read the Mail and the Express and the Sun and watched television while we ate. So they were hugely supportive, but they were just so excited that I was lucky enough to be able to stay in education and they encouraged me all the way. Now, you go to university and you decide to pursue a career as a criminal barrister afterwards. Why was that? Did you, did you have early ambitions to be working in the law? Well, I think it was a combination of two things. The first was television, which was my biggest resource for kind of inspiration. So I watched a lot of telly and I still do, largely Netflix, of course. And so it looked like a glamorous, exciting job where what you got paid shows, to argue. Which shows were you watching, like Ali McBeal? Ali McBeal. Yeah. Like, it's not like that at all, guys. Just to warn you, if you're thinking about it, really not like that at all. And so I was interested in it. But the truth was that I had a moment, which I think a lot of us, perhaps as women, have had, where someone said no to me. I was at my final year at Edinburgh. I'd studied English because I didn't really know what to do with my life. And there was a guy in my year and he was very impressive and more traditionally kind of lawyerly than I was. I'd never met a lawyer until I became one. And I asked him what he was going to do next because I had no clue what I was going to do with my life. And he said, I'm going to do this thing called a conversion course at City University. You do three years in one year and I'm going to become a barrister and be paid to argue. And I thought, that sounds perfect. So I said... I think I might do that. And he said, I don't think so, Sam. I don't think people like you can get on this course. And of course, I applied that afternoon and I did get on the course. And it was astonishingly challenging. Grown men and women were crying all over the place at the finals. And I loved every second. So I'm very grateful to him that he told me I couldn't do it. And I was lucky enough that I got the chance. Yeah, I hope this isn't going to ruin the last question on this podcast, which is the worst advice you've ever received. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you've got more in the tank. Don't worry, I've got Um, loads of bad advice I've received. Okay, great. Um, So so you do the course, um, and then obviously you you start acting as a criminal barrister. At what point do you think this isn't for me? Uh, And and is that the moment where you're seeing journalism and thinking you're interested? Or did you first decide you don't want to be a criminal barrister anymore and then work out later what came next yeah absolutely I mean I have to be frank I was just kind of like completely clueless about professions like in my world you become a doctor or a lawyer or you work on the markets like my family did or you run a business those were kind of the four options so I'd gone for the law two years in I realized that things were not going well I was miserable to be brutally frank my hair started falling out I had insomnia I'm stressed I was crying every day. That is not a good sign. And I remember sitting in prayer. Other places are available for consumption of croissants and coffee. Crying, uh, you know, sort of like 28 years old, thinking there's 40 more years of this and I am so miserable. And I I went in that day and you're you're self-employed. So I resigned with no plan. And I remember saying to my pupil master, who's the guy that kind of like runs you and owns you and makes your life a living hell. Well, you know, the, the world is my oyster. And he said, do you really think so? That was his last words to me. Thank you very much. And, and I didn't know what to do. So I sat on my bum, unemployed, with 40 years of you know, unpaid employment ahead of me. And so journalism was not the thing I was thinking of. I was thinking, who do I know that has jobs that sound vaguely interesting? I had three friends, one in charity, one who was a professor, 
and one who happened to work at Radio 4, and I asked each of them and all generously said I could go and spend a day with them in their workplace because I was starting from zero. And I went to Radio 4. She was working on a program called Law in Action. None of them were lawyers. And because I was a lawyer, they think you know the law, like everything, you know, housing, parking tickets, you know, criminal law, you know, kind of international law. And so I was quite useful because I knew some law. And two days turned into six weeks and six weeks turned into 16 years. So you start off doing radio broadcast. Yes. And then does that mean you're, you, you joined where your friend was working? Yeah, so basically she then decided, this is a weird circle of life thing. She's a wonderful woman called Kate Wright. She's now an academic. So she left to become a professor uh, about just, I didn't even know this was a thing, like kind of like three months after I arrived and I backfilled behind her. So thank you very much, Kate. It's like a job, not quite a job swap because you weren't really bringing anything on your side, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was bringing absolutely nothing on my side and she was very generous to let me turn up at all. (laughs) Um, Now... I mentioned the introduction, of course, Newsnight. We'll get to that interview. So at what point did you move? How's, how was it moving from the BBC to get to Newsnight? Did you, did you know there were certain shows you wanted to work on more than others? Or Well, I mean, it was one of those stereotypical kind of like woman moments. And I, you know, I'm a complete feminist and I, I, I hate to sort of like resort to this as a stereotypical moment. But I had a child. I came back. I wanted to work part time. I wanted to do the same job. And my boss said... No. And I was put into this hellhole. It's kind of a Kafka-esque nightmare called development, which in television basically means you sit in a cupboard and you work on things that never happen and everyone seems to hate you. And I was miserable as sin. And they had this BBC thing called Hot Shoes, which probably cost like 150 grand to come up with, where you could go for one day anywhere. And to be honest with you, Katie, I just wanted to meet Jeremy Paxman. So I asked to go to Newsnight to meet Jeremy Paxman for a day. For your hot shoes day. For my hot shoes day. Um, I know, you can't make this up, can you? And I went there and I walked into that room. I'd never done television. I'd never done news. You're picturing a theme right now. Never met a lawyer until I became one. Never done television. Never done news. Never done live. And within eight hours, I thought I'd be photocopying because who would let me do anything? I ended up briefing Jeremy Paxman face-to-face on the Irish economy, which I knew literally zero about. So it was a baptism of fire, and I loved every second. Um, Did he take your briefing well? He took the briefing semi-well. Jeremy is amazing and does not suffer fools gladly, and I was semi-foolish that day. But I think he appreciated my enthusiasm and my effort, even if the content wasn't great, but that's a man who does not need much producing. 95% Jeremy, 5% production. Others are 95% production, 5% themselves. But he really didn't need me. So him asking one of my made-up questions on my brief was just a moment, you know, where you just kind of pinch yourself. And then after that, you get back to Newsnight. I do. So I basically went at the end of the day to the editor, amazing guy called Peter Barron, very creative, very open-minded. And I kind of did that thing that I often do where I say something outrageous and hope for the best. So I walked into his office and I said, I have to work here. It's amazing. Um, Give me six weeks. If I'm shit, am I allowed to say shit? Thank you. If I'm shit, get rid of me. You never hear from me again. If I'm good, keep me. And he went, okay, I'll give you six weeks. And I ended up being there, I don't know, somewhere between 13 and 16 years. I'm a bit vague on the details. Now for listeners, I think at this point we have to explain what a booking producer actually does. Yes. 
often I think people don't quite understand, but what is a day in the life at this point? You're calling, trying to get guests lined up. Do you have to get the guests agreed by your editor? Do you have situations where, uh, I think we've all in our lives been stood down by producers at the last minute. Um, <laughs> so, so you book someone, then they say, no, we've got someone better. How does it work? It is a completely fascinating enterprise. So I think the average idea is that people are queuing up to come onto BBC programmes. It could not be further from the truth. Perhaps at the Today programme, there probably is quite a long queue. But on Newsnight, the queue was basically like, you know, a hamster, a dog, and someone who'd taken a wrong direction. Getting people to come on and risk their reputation politically, personally, professionally, or in terms of their business, getting blood from a stone. Now, I love being the underdog, so that was fine by me. But your day was basically spent 99% rejection, begging, charming, trying anything that you could. And the job of the interviews producer or the booker or the guest getter, whatever you want to call it, was to persuade people to please come on this evening because we have 10 minutes of empty television and I need bums on seats. So bums on seats was my job. You don't want to do it. You hate coming on Newsnight. You're terrified of being with Jeremy Paxman. And I've probably got 90 seconds to persuade you otherwise. That was my job. And... Would you get in trouble if you're trying to book a guest and then they say no to you and the next morning they're on the Today programme? Usually not, because what would generally happen is that I remember working with someone who ended up being an editor of the Today programme and I basically spent like three months of my life trying to get someone who was like quite a famous footballer on the programme, done a pitch, done a second pitch, done a call, done an in-person, done a fifth pitch, and he gets a call going hey, uh, Today programme person, would you like this person on today? And he goes, oh, yeah, okay. So a very different vibe, a very different vibe. They have a different audience. They have a different offer. And I like having an offer that people aren't really interested in and persuading them to do it. So my personality is you don't want to do it. Let me tell you why you do. And perhaps you might change your mind. I don't want an easy life. It's never suited me. So this is a story often viewers won't see because I just see who gets on the sofa, not how, how they got to that point. So it, do you remember an interview, which was probably like the first big name you landed or, or I suppose a guest that surprised the presenters and the rest of the team that you managed to get them in the studio? Yeah, funnily enough, it, the just recently dearly departed Jerry Springer. I remember trying to get Jerry Springer on the programme and I managed to convince him And to say that Jeremy was unconvinced, it would literally go like this every time. You walk into the office, you say, I've got the Prime Minister of Italy. And he'll be like, why? Why are we having this person? I'm like, it's the Prime Minister of Italy. It's, you know, Eurozone. There's contagion. It's the most important geopolitical story in the world. It's economic disaster. Why? Why have we got him on? And I was used to that. He was particularly resistant to Jerry because I think he thought, you know, perhaps intellectually... He wasn't going to be as gifted as the average Newsnight kind of like person would be. Oh, and he was just magical. The interview is really special. It is a meeting of equals. And I remember in that moment, I argued with Jeremy. And luckily, I had an editor that day who was on my side, that it would be a fantastic, magical piece of television that was unforgettable. He trusted me generously. It was magical television. It could have gone the other way. And Jeremy did that thing where he sat upright in his chair when he's on the back foot or on the back chair, as the case may be. And Jerry just took him to town. And Jeremy respected that. And he trusted my judgment. And then that really helped me out. 
Now, what gives producers an edge over other producers? Obviously, we want to be nice to everyone. Um, but <laughs> in any career, there are you know winners and losers. So I don't know, you must have seen lots of people, lots of people try a job for a few days and then decide it's not for them. What do you see as kind of, well, the classic fails for aspiring producers? Obviously, I'm, I'm looking at my producer, but she's not aspiring. She's very established. She's inspiring, not yeah, aspiring. Exactly, yes, exactly. absolutely. And she's a delight, as are all producers. Um, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's a mixed bag. I think if you, if guest production, creating those magic moments that nobody forgets, because ultimately when you ask about Newsnight, no one remembers the beautifully crafted films. Yeah. They remember the interviews. I think the top advice is persistence. You would not believe the number of people that you would say, could you try and get this person on? And they say, oh, I tried. And then when you deconstruct it, it turns out... They sent a text. They sent a text, they didn't reply. They sent them an email, it bounced back. The end. So resilience in terms of it's 99% rejection. It's like going on 99 first dates and getting told that they're not interested. Politeness, because most people lose their temper, and I never, ever have. Polite persistence, and also just that hunger I just had that hunger to win. You know, my family were deal makers. We were market people. We were entrepreneurs. I wanted to close the deal. I was competitive, relentlessly so. But just wanting to win and being polite and being persistent, probably the three most important things for a booker, although obviously not if you want to be Martin Scorsese, which I couldn't be because I was rubbish at making films. So do you like an adrenaline rush? I do. I do. I mean, it's a real, I mean, it really is a rush. I mean, it's terrifying. It's like Schrodinger's producer. You are simultaneously thrilled and terrified at all times and you don't know. So you spend your life half the time hoping you're going to lose your job because it's the most terrifying job in the world and half the time praying to the Lord that you won't lose the job because it is the most enrapturing, thrilling experience to meet these incredible people who basically run the world. Now, let's talk about that interview. Which one? Which one? Can you narrow it down, Katie? <laughs> Prince Andrew. We're going to play some clips, I think. She described dancing with you no. and you profusely sweating <laughs> and that she went on to have bath, there's a, there's possibly... A, there's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. And that was, oh, actually, yes. I didn't sweat at the time because I um, ha- had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. Uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. Do you remember dancing at Tramp? No. That couldn't have happened because the date that is being suggested, I was at home with the children. You know that you were at home with the children. Mm. Was it a memorable night? On that particular day that, that, that um, uh, we now understand is the date, which is the 10th of March, uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a pizza express in Woking for a party at, a, I suppose, sort of four or five in the afternoon. Why would you remember that so specifically? Why would you remember a, a Pizza Express birthday and being at home? Because going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. Am I right in thinking you threw a, a birthday party um, for Epstein's girlfriend, Galen Maxwell, at Sandringham? 
No, it was a shooting weekend. A shooting weekend. Just a straightforward, straightforward shooting weekend. Quite a memorable interview. <laughs> I think you are basically, I will say, I will challenge you now at this stage in our, in our relationship that that's probably an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. Now, now, I know you've put this in your book, I know you've spoken about it, but do just bear with us. And for our listeners who saw that interview, because obviously huge viewing figures, and I think even if you weren't watching live, everyone has seen a bit of that interview effectively. It was obviously had a huge effect in terms of the royal family today. Um, the fact that Prince Andrew is not a royal, you see at lots of events these days. Um, it's ha- perhaps having to change his accommodation. That may, may or not be related, but, but it was seismic. So talk, talk us through how you go about, A, the idea, does it come from the presenter? Does it come from you? And then how you go about nailing it down? I mean, I was basically a law unto myself at that stage. I am, in the nicest possible way, unmanageable. I'm not difficult. I just, just leave me to it. So at that stage, we were between two editors, and we'd never had a member of the royal family. And I got a random email from a PR I'd worked with saying, hey, Sam, we're working with Prince Andrew. Um, This was a year before this seismic event happened. Would you like to interview him? Now, just completely random. It was what we call a puff piece, which is where, for those who don't know what that means, it's like they just want to talk about how amazing they are. Now, at Newsnight, no way. They don't happen. So I politely declined, but I put at the end of the email what I always put, the polite decline, and then if Prince Andrew changes his mind and would like to do a more wide-ranging interview, which basically allows Newsnight to do it, because we will not be told what we can ask, then please do get back in touch. Katie, they never get back in touch. Fast forward, May of next year, I get another email. Prince Andrew is now open to doing a more wide-ranging conversation. Would you like to come to Buckingham Palace on Monday? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's yes. So I went to Buckingham Palace on the Monday, this is in the May, and I knew it was a million to one that we would get an interview even at that stage because they've never done a Newsnight interview and why would you take the risk? Because we don't do the kind of interviews that royal family members usually do. And did you go with Emily Maitlis at this point? I went alone. Yeah. And even because I'm so used to failure and I, I have no issue with failure, people are entitled to say no, I didn't even tell my editor. I treated it, to be frank with you, um, rather déclassé, but as a bit of a day out, because he was never going to say yes. I'm going to Buckingham Palace. Let's have some fun. I researched Amanda Thirsk, his chief of staff, and I knew she was super bright, Oxbridge-educated, city, uh, a little bit older than me, but similar kind of background, similar life situation. And I went there to try and convince her, Prince Andrew, to talk about Brexit. Remember that? And the future of the royal family, that kind of thing. We spent two and a half hours together and I got all of that on the table. That's May 2019. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're actually going to have an interview with Prince Andrew. And then Amanda said there was a red line. And the red line was, by the way, Jeffrey Epstein, that's a closed issue for us. We don't want to talk about it. And I thought, oh, red line, it's going to be over. But it's my job to go back to the office, present the opportunity, and for the editor, Esme Wren, now it's to Channel 4 News to say no, which indeed she rightly did. And so I had to decline the first ever possible Newsnight interview with a member of the royal family. The best decision ever that we made, because of course we had the trust, we don't do conditions, and she trusted our integrity that we weren't going to do something for the sake of it. And then things changed a lot for Prince Andrew. It's May, Jeffrey Epstein's arrested, It's the longest indictment in human history. I'm a former criminal defence barrister, so I knew the kind of thing he was facing. He's dead. Maxwell's still at large. 
Virginia Roberts is giving a lot of interviews. There's really reaching a peril stage for Prince Andrew. And I'm relentlessly in touch. May, no. June, no. July, you get the picture. Finally in October, Amanda first sends me a message going, OK then, Sam. And I've been saying, you must speak, you must speak. Everyone thinks he's guilty. You must speak, you must speak. Come in on Monday. And that's the stage at which you're just thinking, this could actually happen. So there was a conversation with Emily in the October where I went in with her, and then a further conversation in the November, 12 days later, which was face-to-face on the Monday with Prince Andrew. Princess Beatrice ended up coming to that negotiation, Amanda Thirsk, Emily, myself, and Stuart McLean, the deputy editor, in a tiny room negotiating face-to-face for the interview, frankly, I thought of the year, if not the decade. But of course, it ended up being the interview of the century, in my view. And on the day, how nervous are you? I basically haven't slept. I haven't eaten. I am an absolute wreck. And are you we worried all were. It, Are you worried it could get cancelled at the last minute? Or are you just worried? Like, what, what are the kind of um, things that are stressing you out? There is every worry in the world because as the producer, it's one of those kinds of things where you carry everything on your shoulders. And I brought in effect with Stuart and Emily's help, you know, the possibility of an extraordinary experience. Because when we spoke to him face to face on the Monday, he said some quite extraordinary things. Now, what usually happens is you have the briefing conversation. The person says extraordinary stuff. You tell your presenter and then lo and behold, the camera goes on and they say nothing and you look like you made it up and it's a boring interview this was the one time in human broadcast history that that did not happen partly perhaps because that person just hasn't done that much media or that asked questions like that right I think also because there's a level of uh, a lack of inhibition that comes from power and which we've both seen in different types and I think that Prince Andrew was the extremest example of power that's unfettered without criticism. So if you're a government minister, at least you probably have maybe one or two robust special advisors or when Dominic Cummings was around, someone who's going to give you a bit of welly. But if you're Prince Andrew, you've literally never had any welly. So there's no real understanding, for better or worse, of your capabilities and your weaknesses. So from his point of view, I think he had a misunderstanding about how well he was going to do. But let's be frank, Nobody with a high profile thinks they're going to do a bad interview. He's just the most extreme example. And did you do lots of practices, kind of role play sessions of Emily Maitlis before it? So Emily, so basically Esme was the only sane person left because she didn't come to the negotiations and she was the editor back in the office. And she and Emily basically did those kind of role plays. I wasn't in the room at that stage. I worked part time and I was probably at home with my son at that stage. And Stuart, the deputy editor, another another producer called Jake Morris was doing all of that gaming out the interview and the thing about being an interviews producer that's quite interesting is it's kind of like being a surrogate you kind of spend nine months looking after the baby you give birth and you have to hand it over but the huge joy was that on the day you're the surrogate in the room that doesn't have to do the parenting so I literally sat there for that was it 50 minutes just watching and taking in that most extraordinary television moment and it's interesting looking at some of the statements, I think, from the presenter, but also, you know, various stories around it, which was, there is a suggestion Prince Andrew thought it had gone okay. I, I would say that is not a suggestion, that is a fact. 
So we get to the end of the interview and I've got my lawyer brain, which goes, oh my God, you're in serious trouble. And my journalist brain, which goes, oh my God, this is the scoop of the century. And I have to look up and speak to the people around me. Now I have a terrible problem, Katie, which is that I cannot do anything other than tell the truth. And that's really problematic in a situation like this because that interview has not gone well. And now I have to interact with his staff. So a lovely um, woman next to me who worked for him, not Amanda, someone else. And I just don't know what to say. Do you think the staff knew? I don't think they did because I looked up and I have to say something. So in a rather high-pitched voice, which gives away that I'm a bit nervous because I know this is a slightly difficult situation. I say to her, so how do you think it went? Open question. And she went, wasn't he wonderful? And he looks like he's just won the lottery. He's smiling. He offers us a tour around the palace. He is congenial. He lets us take photos. He thinks it has gone extremely well. You're like, get out, get the footage out. <laughs> I'm like, get, I use the word toot when I need to swear. I'm like, get the toot out of here. I'm just like, you know, we're going to be in the Tower of London. Like, this is, this is a serious problem. Phone calls are going to be made. Careers are going to be ruined. Emily and I both looked like someone had shot our dog. I don't even have a dog, but a theoretical dog. And he looked extremely happy and we needed just to get out of there. Now, we've all seen the interview. I suppose the final thing on that is just when it came out, did you get much backlash? Did people, did you, did you get much from the palace, other places? Because at the time, if they're happy, they shouldn't be unhappy later, but it doesn't always work like that. Well, you would think so, right? I would have to say my general experience is that interviews, many of which have gone much, much better than that, there's usually some kind of pushback, some kind of complaint, people chancing their luck. That's the nature of the business, right? People are wanting to complain. Nothing. Nothing. I thought maybe my job would be over. Maybe there'll be a lawsuit. I knew I'd acted with integrity. I knew I'd told the truth. I knew that we'd said there'd be fair questions, which there were. I knew his answers were the problem. I expected problems and there were none now after this you end up eventually leaving Newsnight I did was that partly just because obviously you wrote your book scoops just for our listeners did you just think you know at this point there's more to life you've netted some really big wins it's time to focus a bit more on your own career what what made you think actually just step aside yeah it was a combination of factors on a, on a personal level I had been bringing out my son on my own and he was older so for example I could leave him alone for half an hour I literally never left him even for half an hour the truth was that I was given kind of a an indirect ultimatum which was if I wanted to write the book I needed to leave and I was ready to take a risk on myself I thought pretentiously forgive me for a moment that it was important that people knew how this happened because in a future situation where someone has to do an episode of The Crown or, you know, write a PhD about the fall of the monarchy or Prince Andrew. How did this interview happen? Well, no one knew. They knew the back end and Emily's brilliance and Stuart's hard work and Esme's, you know, achievements, all of which were fantastic. But I was the only person in the world who could tell you the story from the first email. And I felt pretentiously that was important. And personally, I wanted to tell that story yeah and, and it is a story that is often not told which is how you get the interviews we all watch obviously this is a particularly influential interview but people don't really know what the producer does a lot of the time 
No, they don't. And I know, rather jokingly, some friends call me the people's producer, but I've had hundreds and hundreds of, you know, messages from around the world from producers, all of whom have said to me, thank you so much for casting a light on our work. In the industry, there is a strange thing, which is that somehow it's seen as inappropriate for producers to talk about their work or how they've achieved things. There's a kind of a mystery to it all. And I I don't think that's really resonant with the current climate where people want to know the truth about how things happen. I think trust in the media is important. And so I think people knowing more about how these things happen is actually helpful to public trust. And I did think it was important and I wanted to give it a shot to tell the story myself. Now, very final few questions. We've mentioned scoops, which anyone can now buy. And it's also... (laughs) (laughs) Put the link in the bio. (laughs) And that's now coming to Netflix. Billy Piper is playing you. Do you you get any say in who plays you? And were you like pleasantly surprised or pleasantly horrified unpleasantly horrified <laughs> what was your reaction i basically been leading a double life which you're very good at as a producer um which is that i knew that my book was lucky enough to be optioned by a production company and then by netflix and i had to keep it secret and then i knew that there were castings going on and billy was my number one choice and i knew that she Did had the script uh, she knows she knows that now, but I had no I had yeah, no yeah. literal control over it, but I had indirect control, at least theoretically. So I was working on the screenplay with Peter Muffet, who was the screenwriter, who'd done like Silk and you know Brian Cranston, Your Honor, and then he stuck with me. So I had this secret double life where we were putting this project together. And when I found out it was going to be Billy, I mean, words cannot describe how excited I was. I'm not so sure that now she spent all this time wearing. I, I, obviously, you can see I have very kind of flyaway wild blonde hair so she spent months flicking hair out of her face uh, but at least she could take the wig off at the end of the day but uh, I'm stuck with it so has she been hanging out with you to learn how you behave yes yes we spent quite a lot of time together and most hilariously uh, a friend of mine who's a professor at the LSE had to record me walking so that we could send it to Billy one day when she wanted to study my walk which is very distinctive somewhere between a strut and kind of like, like I look like I'm basically going to sort of hurt people to get to where I need to get to always in high heels I'm almost six foot tall yeah. so um and with a bit of a bounce yeah. so my my great friend who used to run the law school at LSE was stuck you know in Aldwych like filming me like 10 times because we were rubbish at filming and sending it to Billy Piper so the levels of surreal uh, but Billy's an absolute delight and I mean you know this this couldn't be more magical or wonderful and she's got the walk down she has <laughs> got the walk down and the final two questions first is just so once this Netflix show comes out what's your plan are you are you tempted to go back into guest booking or do you feel that chapter slightly behind you at this point yeah ne- never again yeah I mean I loved it with a visceral passion but yeah I, I, I've I've left that behind I mean I've got my finger in lots of pies and the, there's the Channel 4 documentary at the moment, which I was also involved in. Maybe a book too, if I'm lucky. I do speaking and I'm just a hustler, you know. I'm the daughter of market people and entrepreneurs and I'm just hustling and grafting and seeing what happens. So on that, we've already heard some bad advice, but what is the worst advice you've ever been given? I have, I have relentlessly been given the advice to basically be quiet, to be quiet about my achievements, to be quiet about myself, to be more classy, to not be a hype woman, to not look for credit for my work, to not look for attention for my efforts. And I have completely 
and categorically for many, many years ignored that terrible advice. And I hope if anyone is told that, that if I can do anything, that being in a Netflix movie about my life is because I ignored that advice. So it was terrible advice and I will keep on ignoring it till the end of my days. Well, thank you, Sam. And thank you for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.